0: With the close of Acts chapter seven and the opening of Acts eight, we've seen a dramatic shift take place. And the way the Jewish leadership, the establishment approached this new work of Jesus and his followers. Now initially for you would say the first three years of the church's existence, there had been a passive and tolerant tactic when it came to how the Jewish religious establishment Approach the Christians. Now, yes, Peter and John on two different occasions were arrested and they were threatened, even beaten. But the church at large had not faced any type of serious opposition. Gamaliel, the scholar of the day, had reasoned that if it was a work of men, they shouldn't take such an approach because it would just die off. If it was a work of man, it would just flow off by the wayside like many who had come before. But if it was a work of God, why oppose it because they wouldn't be able to do anything otherwise. And so, for the first three years, we see this passive and tolerant tactic, but with the close of Acts 7, the opening of Acts 8, things have shifted now to an active and violent campaign. You see, starting with Stephen's arrest, trial, and stoning, his execution, things are now changing, shifting, no longer would the church be able to operate without opposition, without persecution. Things were spearheaded, we're told, by a man named Saul. Now, Understand Saul, though he was a religious zealot, it was more personal to him, this persecution of Christians. You see, Saul had been struck deep. We know from his own testimony, because Saul would later convert, become the apostle Paul, that even in this moment, his opposition, this violence, this vengeance towards Christians, it was birthed not from some holy, righteous peak, but was rather a resistance to his own personal conviction. Scottish preacher Will Arnett says that conviction goes before conversion, but conversion does not always follow conviction. When such a home thrust takes effect on the conscience A great anger is generated, he said, and that anger burns like fire and it must have an object to consume. It will either burn inward to consume your sins or outward to persecute the preacher who exposed them. Acts 8 opens that at this time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. But this resistor, this person resisting the Holy Spirit, who knew the truth, but resisted it with all of his being, this man saw. He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts chapter 2, a fire was ignited in the lives of those filled with the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And over the course of the next few years, as we've looked at this historical document, the book of Acts, this fire born into 120 men and women, it had spread it had engulfed nearly all of Jerusalem. Thousands were now following Jesus. And while there is no doubt that Saul's intention was to disrupt, to curtail the spread of Christianity, the first four verses of Acts 8 seemed to present the idea that his entire approach backfired. Though Saul was trying to stamp out the gospel, at a divine twist of sorts, God, directly uses this great persecution to intentionally distribute his people, to scatter his people into new territories. The result, well, Luke tells us, those who were scattered went everywhere doing what? Trying to hide in fear? No. Preaching the word. I think it's interesting, but think for a moment, Saul, who would become Paul, He was used by God, according to the first four verses of of Acts 8, to spread the gospel throughout the unbelieving world years before he ever embarked on his first missionary journey. It seems whether he was resisting God or submitting to God, Saul had a knack on spreading Christianity throughout the Roman world. Now, there's a lesson that we should point out before we move forward, before we move on. For when you look at this, You look at this dynamic, the church under fire, no doubt the origins being satanic. We've seen in our travels, Satan tried to intimidate the church and then infiltrate the church. Now he's trying to persecute, to silence, to shut up the followers of Jesus. And yet we note that even things that Satan means for our harm, and there are many, God, can use to accomplish his purposes in and through our lives. Don't you love that? That even the things that Satan throws at us that are meant for our destruction, our discouragement, that God can use them. He can redeem them. He can take them and incorporate them into his plan for the work he wants to do in us and the work that he wants to do through us. Yes, we face a very very real enemy, but we also serve a very powerful, real God who can use these things for good. I'm sure if we took a moment this morning, we could all share personal stories of things that we saw in the moment. How is there any good in this? We see them as an attack. We see them. We're discouraged and frustrated. And yet as they play out, we're able to look back and say, you know, that was meant for my harm. But wow, Look at what God took that and how he worked in me and through me in such a glorious way. You know, the Bible's full of examples that support this thought. Moses was born into trying circumstances, but God used these circumstances to place him in the house of Pharaoh so that he might be raised up to lead a nation out of captivity. David spent decades running from the evil King Saul the man seeking his life, throwing spears at him. But it was during these years in exile that God was preparing David for his eventual reign. Peter would tragically deny Jesus on three separate occasions when Jesus needed him most. But Jesus did what? He used this very situation after his resurrection to teach Peter a very important lesson on forgiveness and restoration, a lesson that would change Peter's life forever. The apostle John was arrested, boiled in oil, exiled to the island work camp of Patmos, but while in isolation, he received the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. Satan. Satan thought he had dealt a death blow to the redemptive plans of God when Jesus was unjustly arrested, illegally tried, and brutally executed, but We know that it was in the act. It was in this that God's plans unfolded. For Jesus willingly offered himself as a permanent sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. And it was by his then resurrection that we have created a way by which all humanity might be saved. Satan thought the death of Jesus was a blow, that he had gained the victory, and yet God used it to do what ultimately? To crush Satan. Satan is a very real enemy. This world is a very wicked place. And these things will bite and they will sting and you will suffer. Satan's thoughts are not thoughts of peace for you. He doesn't have a future or a hope. He's meant on your destruction. He's described in in, in the sense that he's only wanting to steal, to kill, and to destroy, especially those who threaten him. And yet, God could take these things, according to our passage, and work them for the good and the spread of the gospel. Well, we're given an example of one individual that was scattered into the surrounding regions. Verse 5, we're told that Philip, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to the Samaritans. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits. Crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Then Philip. Now, not to be confused with the apostle Philip found most prominently in a story contained in John chapter 1. This Philip, on the other hand, was a second-generation believer cut from the same mold, the same cloth as Stephen, first mentioned as one of the young men chosen to be a deacon in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. We know that Philip, from context, was a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, And wisdom. By his name, we can also surmise that he was more than likely a Hellenistic Jew. Either way, Philip. We're told that he went down to the city of Samaria. And there are two ways to see the motivation behind Philip's actions. On one aspect, some have thought that the motivation of Philip going to this area was that, well, He was trying to escape persecution. The flip side is that some believe that this persecution was instead seen as an indication that it was time to move out of Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. And I think the motivation here is important for our understanding of Philip. I don't think Philip was on the run, that he was fleeing Jerusalem because he was afraid of persecution, that he was afraid that the outcome of Stephen would also befall him. If this was his approach, then why go preach the gospel when you get to Samaria? Why not go underground? Why not hide? You see, some speculate that believers remained in Jerusalem because they had become apathetic. That when you get to Acts chapter eight, that the church has grown complacent, that they're comfortable. And thus God allowed the persecution to stir up the pot, to get them to move out, to get them to be obedient to the ultimate call to take the gospel into the world. Don't forget Jesus had been clear, right? In Acts chapter one, go to Jerusalem, wait, for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And some have speculated that the church in Jerusalem, they, they, they got their buddies there. They've got their community there. Things are jiving. Things are great. Things are awesome. And that they're unwilling to move into the areas that surrounded. They were unwilling to be obedient to the call of Jesus because they were just comfortable. They just didn't want to go. They had their friends. They had the church potlucks. It was awesome and glorious. And so why do I want to leave to an area that might be uncomfortable, that might be a more difficult I like what I've got. We are creatures of comfort, aren't we? And yet there's no indication in our text at all that this was the mindset of the church. You see, I think that there's another reason why Philip and all these other believers, when persecution was birthed in Jerusalem, moved out. I don't think it's because they were afraid. I don't think it was because they were unwilling to die for Christ. I think that the answer is that they saw in this persecution, Jesus's cue that it was time to get moving. See, I'm of the opinion that these believers went to Jerusalem because Jesus told them to. And they waited there for the Holy Spirit because Jesus told them to. And they remained there for the next three years waiting for persecution because they saw persecution as Jesus's marching orders. You might think, well, where do we get that, Zach? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus tells these men that when they persecute you in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, then flee to another. I think they took this very literal, that this persecution, this opposition, meant it was the cue, it was the indicator. All right, let's go. Which means that Philip is moving into Samaria Not out of fear of persecution, not on the run, not because, well, the apostles were great and they stayed and everybody else was a little weaker and they ran. No. Once again, this word scattered indicates an intentional distribution by God. It's not accidental. It's not as though something was caught by the wind and blown. No, instead, it's as though God was scattering seeds with intention. Persecution was God's way of letting them know the time to act was now. Outward mobility was finally at hand. Now, geographically, Samaria, a region known by its largest city, that being Samaria, was situated north of Jerusalem. But typographically, Samaria was of lower elevation, which explains why Luke records that Philip went down to the city, though Samaria was north of the city. Most of the time, we would say that he went up there, but he was going down. Samaria, for purposes of understanding the geography, is in today what's known as the West Bank. And so when we talk about Israel, Israel proper, you have the Gaza Strip, you have the West Bank. The West Bank's literally the West Bank of the Jordan River. That's where it gets its name. So just giving you some context. So Philip, he chooses to take the gospel to Samaria, which is of particular interest when you keep in mind that the Jews and the Samaritans weren't exactly friends, that might be an understatement. They were mortal enemies. The Samaritans and the Hebrews hated each other. And the basis of their hatred was two basic prejudices. First, there was racial prejudice. In 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrian empire. And as was their custom, a significant portion of the population was removed from the area, dispersed into the world. These are known as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And they were then replaced by Assyrians. So you had some Hebrew remnant now intermingling with Assyrians over time, these Hebrews that remained who had already proven to be idolatrous and wicked, it's why God judged them, they began to intermarry with the pagan Gentiles, forming a new race known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans still exist today. There are approximately a thousand Samaritans still in existence. Because the law forbids such intermarrying, such behavior, those from the southern kingdom of Judah who had been spared the invasion of the Assyrians, Isaiah, Hezekiah, a revival. The angel of the Lord uh, taking care in in one night, 180, the the armies of the Assyrians camped outside. The angel of the Lord slew them all. Awesome story. God spared the Southern kingdom, but because the behavior of the remnant was wicked and evil, intermarrying with the Assyrians, the Hebrews looked down on the Samaritans as basically being an illegitimate half-breed who had forsaken or given away their birthright. The animus was so great that Jews refused to even enter Samaritan territory or come in contact at all with this particular people group. According to one source, one scholar, we read that both Jewish and Samaritan religious leaders taught that it was wrong to have any contact with the opposite group and neither was to enter each other's territories or speak to one another. During the New Testament period, although the tensions went unrecognized by Roman authorities, Josephus reports, first century Jewish historian Josephus, reports that numerous violent confrontations between Jews and Samaritans occurred throughout the first half of the first century. They hated each other. Which, by the way, should explain why Jesus' parable about a good Samaritan was so offensive to the population at large. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan was an oxymoron, like Microsoft works. The two don't go together. You see, telling a story to Jews with the hero being a Samaritan would be akin to telling a story at a Klan rally with the hero being Django. I mean, the racial divisions that existed here were so deep, were so nasty, were even historical and religiously justified. And don't think the disciples or the followers of Jesus were immune to such prejudice. We're told that the hatred was so palpable that when Jesus was refused entry into Samaria, that two of Jesus's most trusted disciples, the inner circle, James and John, asked permission to command fire to come down from heaven to consume the cities of the Samaritans. Talk about an interesting evangelical approach. The basis, in addition to being ethnic or racial, of the prejudice was also religious. Beyond ethnic divisions, there was also a strong disagreement between these two groups as it pertained to the worship of Jehovah or God dating all the way back to the original divisions of the unified kingdom the Hebrews believed the temple was to be located in Jerusalem while the Samaritans were convinced that the temple and the worship of God should occur on Mount Gerizim both groups the Samaritans and the Hebrews viewed each other as being heretics for more than 700 years. That's a long time. The vast majority of Jews refused contact with the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. Racially, religiously, they had this prejudice. They despised them. And yet, isn't it interesting, peculiar at least, that when the opportunity presented itself for Philip to take the gospel anywhere, This man could have gone anywhere he wanted to. Instead, he chooses specifically to take the gospel to the forbidden city of Samaria. I think there's two explanations for why Philip decided to do this. First, Jesus called Philip. I know that's simple, but it's true that ultimately Philip took his marching orders from his king, from his Lord. He was filled with the spirit. He asked Jesus in prayer, Lord, where do you want me to go? And no doubt Jesus said, go to Samaria. And there was a reason that God placed this burden on Philip's heart. And that was because Jesus had prepared a harvest that needed to be reaped. I don't typically read huge swaths of scripture, but I want to read John chapter four, several verses to kind of set the stage for the harvest that did need to be reaped. Jesus' ministry to this particular area. We're told that Jesus left Judea and he departed to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to. It was not an accident. He had a plan and a purpose. So he came to the city of Samaria, a city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria, she came to to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? And Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. so the woman, perplexed, said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, no doubt pointing to the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. But Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. But the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good observation." Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem it's the place where one ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jew. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, the woman, she left her water pot. She went her way into the city. And she said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Which is dangerous because of this woman's particular reputation. A lot of men are beginning to sweat, thinking, wait, there's someone that knows all of the things that you've ever done. So they come out, and what happens? Many of the Samaritans of that city, they believed in Jesus, and they urged him to stay. So Jesus stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. This is the only time that Jesus goes into this region. It's the only time that the gospel has been extended. Jesus, it's a radical thing that he went into such an area, intentionally, with purpose, freaked out the disciples. The fact that he interacted with this woman stayed two days. No doubt, an incredible work of God takes place several years have now transpired. And Jesus knew that this area, the work that he began, that the seeds that he had sown had sprouted and had grown. And he sends Philip to bring in the harvest. It seems obvious that the Holy Spirit testified in Philip's life that Jesus had called him to be his witness in Samaria. So obviously Philip goes, against racial prejudice and religious prejudice, because Jesus said go. And no doubt there was a harvest, but I think there's another reason. And that is that Philip's heart towards the Samaritans had been transformed. Well, one can reason that Philip had grown up harboring the same racial and religious prejudices towards the Samaritans Surrendering his life to Jesus, being filled with the Spirit of God, had transformed his hearts in real, tangible ways. Philip understood that since salvation came by grace, not works, not heritage, that no man was beyond the reach of God, and then no man had a moral standing to look down upon another. In Christ, there is simply no room for racial divisions. Amen? Amen. Nor is there room for religious divisions. Now, you might scratch your head a little bit at that. I'm going to make a statement that might sound a little controversial at first, but roll with me. All religion is the same. All religion is the same. Islam, certain aspects of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, all religion, it's the same. As a matter of fact, all religions lead to God too. You know that? It's just that all religions lead to a judgment seat. For no man on his own merit can achieve righteous standing before God. All religions lay out a path by which men might work for God's approval And they all bring them before God, but for judgment, for no man on his own can ever attain on his own righteous standing before God. All religion leads to a judgment seat, but in Jesus, we find reward. It's not religion. Religion never saved a soul, but a relationship with Jesus, a person, an encounter with a risen, resurrected Lord, well, that will save a soul. Because it's his righteousness that is imparted on our account. That we're saved by grace, working through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. And when we understand this grace and how glorious it is, at the foot of the cross, there's nothing but equal ground, there's no racial or religious prejudice when we come to Christ. Along the same thread, the Apostle Paul would declare in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29, that neither Jew nor Greek, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or his descendants and heirs, according to the promise." You know, before we move on, I think that there's another component in regards to this transformation that's occurring in Philip's heart that should be pointed out. Yes, Jesus called him. The Spirit directed him. Both had transformed him. But you know, I think one of the contributing factors to why Philip now could no longer use his prejudice as an excuse for not going to the Samaritans is that he had now just experienced the same kind of prejudice, hadn't he? You see, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were now persecuting Christians. Why? They were persecuting Christians for religious purposes. They viewed them as a sect that was now heretical. In addition, there seems to be evidence that Philip was specifically targeted, as was Stephen, because they were Hellenistic Jews as opposed to the apostles who were Hebrew Hebrews. It could very well be that Philip had personally now experienced the same kind of venom, the same kind of poison he had been showing to the Samaritans, but now he was the recipient of it, that he was being persecuted along racial and religious lines. And you know, it becomes much harder to maintain a prejudice when you become the recipient of that same prejudice. Philip's heart had changed and he had seen what God had done in his own life. And he had seen, he had tasted the same venom he had spewed at some point. And he said, it not be so. And so he goes to Samaria and Luke tells us that Philip does what? He preached Christ. I love that. Philip preached. Literally. This means that he heralded or openly proclaimed Jesus. Please observe what what Philip didn't do. Philip didn't preach a religious code to live by, nor did he herald for social transformation or rail against the politics of the day. Rather, Philip simply preached a person, an individual. He heralded Jesus. He told people about Jesus who Jesus is, what Jesus had done for him, what Jesus was willing to do for them. You know, I find it interesting that we find a combination of sorts laid out in Acts 8 that on the surface might seem contradictory. Did you notice it? See, on one hand, Luke has just pointed out that that those who were scattered did what? They went everywhere preaching, but they preached what? The word. But now, just a couple verses later, He tells us that Philip preached what? The word? No, he preached Christ, which lends us to an interesting question. Did Philip preach Christ as Luke says that he did? Or did he preach the word as Luke says that he did? The answer, he did both. You see, preaching the word is how we preach Christ. The two are completely inseparable. Revelation chapter 19 tells us, John saw heaven open. There was this white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We know this is Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called, what? the word of God. You know, in every sermon in the book of Acts, we find this model demonstrated. Peter, John, Stephen, later Paul, and in this instance, Philip. Every single one of them went to a town and they preached. They preached Jesus, a Christ-centric message. But how? They based it on God's written word. Please note that even in his earthly ministry, Jesus used the word of God as the basis for communicating all of his purposes. I'd encourage you on your own to read Luke chapter four for in laying out his plan, his mission statement, Jesus turned to the prophet Isaiah and quoted directly from the prophet himself. You know, Jesus through his ministry would quote from some 24 Old Testament books. Those that he didn't were probably combination books that we've later divided. I hope you understand this morning. It's not just that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 verse 17. Nor is it that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to even the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. But it is ultimately that by the word of God, we are able to know the son of God, the person of Jesus Christ. I love the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself through the written word. I think it's brilliant. You know, the written word, it's relatable. I mean, words are the basis for all human communication. God's just choosing to communicate to reveal himself the same way we reveal ourselves to one another through words. Written words are knowable. They're the basis for how we express ourselves to one another, so why not be the basis by which God expresses himself to human beings? Written words, they transcend culture, they can be translated, they endure time. But understand, what makes preaching the word of God so essential to our development or the development of our Christian lives, it's not just that by studying God's word, we learn about Jesus But most importantly, it's through the study of God's word, the reading of God's word, the consuming of God's word, that you become like Jesus. It's not just to learn about some historical character. It's to get to know him so that you might become like him. It's why we preach the whole Bible, so that Jesus transforms you into being more like Jesus, so when you go into the world, his light shines all the more brightly. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, we're told that it is for this reason that we thank God without ceasing, ceasing because you have received the word of God, which you heard from us. You have welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as the truth, the word of God, which Paul says, works effectively in you who believe. It's the one book that works in you. It's alive. It changes you. It is simply a truth that we become like the people we hang out with. Which means it's impossible to become like Jesus if you don't spend time in his word. You know, sadly, many churches today are failing their congregations by not teaching the Bible. William still made a sobering and stark observation that really spoke to me and encouraged me. Let me read it. It's a little lengthy. But he says, It is to feed sheep on such truth that men are called to churches and congregations, whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think you are called to keep a largely worldly organization, miscalled a church, going, with infantismal doses of innocuous sub Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only hope I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger. A far healthier and more godly job keeping the streets tidy, then cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap and the delusion that you are doing a job for God. Couldn't say it better myself. The pastor is called to feed the sheep. Even if they don't want to be fed, he is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let the goats entertain goats. And let them do so out in Goatland. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe the word of God by his spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men, people of the word of God. Luke tells us that the multitudes heeded the things spoken by Philip. They accepted them, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame walked. Don't overlook the significance of a very subtle detail we find here. This revival that's taking place here by the preaching of Philip, by this man, Philip, God's man, this revival taking place, this Samaritan's hearing, note, it first took place because they were hearing the words of Philip, right? Hearing. But secondly, and maybe even most importantly, they were also seeing the very power he spoke of practically demonstrated and in through his life. They were hearing his words and they were seeing his behavior. You know, we should keep all this in mind because what makes the resurrected Jesus so compelling to the world is not that there are solid intellectual proofs. There are. But instead, what makes the resurrection of Jesus such a compelling statement is that people can see Jesus practically transforming individual lives. Your life communicates way more about your beliefs than your words do. We all have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus. And we can do this by, by explaining the radical way that Jesus has transformed your life, my life. But it is also an inescapable reality that your life must validate your message. If you tell people about Jesus, the power of Jesus and how it can transform a life, your life in particular, but then there's nothing that makes your life any different? Why should anyone believe a word you have to say? Let me ask you some questions. What makes your life different from the unbelieving world around you? Is there a difference? Do people see the joy of the Lord oozing out of your life? Do people see a peace? that can only be described as otherworldly because it's not normal? Do you demonstrate the grace of God or pass along the love of the Father to those around you? You can talk of the love of Jesus, but do you show it? You can talk about the grace of God, but do you demonstrate it? Do people taste it and see it? Please consider, if people were only reaching conclusions about Jesus by looking at your life, what conclusions about Jesus would be reached? Sad to say, but according to Barna Group, the most common negative perceptions of present-day Christianity is that Christians are judgmental. 87% believe that. Hypocritical, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too involved in politics, 75%. 91% of young Christians, of young non-Christians believe that Christianity is anti-homosexual. May I ask you a question? How do they reach those conclusions about Christianity? By interacting and observing Christians. But what's sad is, does any of that sound like Jesus? It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Jesus is as far from being judgmental or hypocritical or old-fashioned or political or anti-homosexual that Jesus loves people. The world reaches conclusions about Jesus by encountering you, for you're the ambassador. It wasn't what they just heard from Philip that contributed to a revival. It was what they see, what they saw. There was power, it was tangible, it was real. He talked about a person, it was evident he knew. He spoke of a power. It was clear he possessed. Once again, William still explains how being an effective witness is ultimately possible and what the ultimate remedy for our own shortcomings is. Because when you hear a point like this, first, it's easy to think about how other people are being judgmental and all this. It's hard to internalize it, but you should. This is God's word to you. Are you representing Jesus by not just your words, but how you live. But then if you're like me, there's a a weight that falls, right? We're like, oh, I'm failing. I'm not that. I want to be that, but I'm not. I want to be more like Jesus, but I fall short. What can I do? (laughs) You can do nothing. It's not about what you do. It's about who you allow to shine through. You see, people see Jesus not because you act like Jesus, but because Jesus shines through your life. It's not you trying to imitate him. It's him filling you and then working out of you. William Still, he says this, Indeed, my whole view of the Christian's responsibility for primary evangelism is founded upon the belief that the greatest ev- evangelistic and pastoral agency in the world is the Holy Spirit dwelling naturally in God's children so that Christ shines out of them all the time or nearly all the time and is known to do so by those with whom they say they have anything more than just casual contact, even with them. We have to let our light shine, not hide it, certainly not flash it, which draws attention to ourselves, ourselves, but we must believe that it is shining. Now and then comes the opportunity to let its beam blaze out like a lighthouse as some need is made known or we are challenged by our faith. But normally we should let our light shine believing that Jesus Christ is witnessing through us in and to the world. Philip, he crosses racial religious barriers with the good news of Jesus and what Jesus wants to do in the lives of people. And they saw it, they witnessed it, they accepted it because you know, his life illustrated it. And so father with this word.